Welcome to the Don't Die Podcast, sponsored by Aloe Treatment Centers. They're out in Malibu. They're in Silver Lake. It's a treatment center I started with some friends. We want you to get the right treatment, the right program for you, and stop dying. And stop dying, Chuck. Get on your mic, Chuck. I'm honored, I'm honored, I'm honored. You're on your phone. I'm honored, I'm honored, I'm honored. Were you looking at Smut Peddler pictures? I was actually looking at pictures I just took of you guys, and they're really nice. So we're very excited to have one of my favorite guys, my favorite clients. Can I say that? <laughs> you can say that, yes. <laughs> so, so Mike, shut the fucking door. Whoa. He's so nervous. Oh, I can't believe it. <laughs> <laughs> That's our mighty producer, Mike Mart, who is excellent at producing and being a third character on the podcast. Yes. But... Um, I have a, I have like how long have we? Forrest George is our guest. His, he's an old friend of mine. Clients are friends. That's how it's always been with me back in the day. Mm-hmm. What, what, how long have we known each other? Twenty years. It's been a long it's fucking a time long, for long us. Time. And the first time we were hanging out together, I said, "Dude, if we got it was right when gay marriage was popular." I said, "Dude, if we got married, your name would be Forrest Forrest." <laughs> <laughs> that would be cool. <laughs> You should have so, done it. Should have done it. <laughs> we could have. Might have been so, a story if you'd have done it. <laughs> I know. But uh, and so it was what? It was probably probably what ninety nine, two thousand, two thousand one. When was it? I um, I think right around that period of time sounds about right to me. And you know, I noticed the last name, and there is a musician who Mike and I and Thelonious Monster loved and idolized, and I actually heard about. I've actually heard Little Feet from the Golden Pound Minos. Michael Stipe and Sid Straw recorded I've Been the One on a Golden Pound Minos album in like 1983. That's the first time I ever heard your dad's songs. Wow. And and this is what's great about music. Mm-hmm. So I'm this fucking freak about music like I know that Forrest is. Chuck, you have been known to. Mike forgets everything. <laughs> but... But... <laughs> but, but I just, I was like, who is oh. this guy who wrote this fucking song that's so beautiful? I don't know if you've heard Sid Straw's version of I've Been the One. I'm going to have to you check it out. you got to check it out. So that was 83. So I become obsessed with this guy. And it's this band, Little Feet. I get, I go down the used record store like you always do. Renee's <laughs> yeah. Records on Melrose. You were probably going there. Renee's, Aaron's. Tower Records. Tower more. Records. Was, oh, brand new records? I remember records? Licorice Pizza, too. But those are brand new records. You got to yeah. get them for 99 cents. Because <laughs> I'm poor. I was a student. So I went and I found the, the first Little Feet album, right? It's... I still have like five copies of it. I have vinyl copies that I can't find. I got CDs. I got cassettes. It's one of the greatest albums ever made, the first Little Feet album. You got to check mm. it out, Chuck. We're um, going to educate Chuck about yeah, Little no, Feet. Yeah, no, I absolutely need to be brought up to speed. I trust so Chuck, you. In, in doing his prep for the podcast, Wikipedia your dad, and because he loves Led Zeppelin, and apparently Jimmy <laughs> Page is the biggest fan of your dad in the world. He did say something to that effect. <laughs> at, at one point in the 70s, he said they were his favorite American band. Look at Chuck's said. face. 1975. <laughs> to Rolling Stone. Rolling Jimmy Stone, Page yes, said yes, that. Yes, he did. Yeah, that's what I know. That's what I'm bringing to the table today. So it's so exciting. So so me and Forrest just were hanging out, and he was through map, all those map days, and Buddy Arnold and stuff, and then we kind of, you were staying sober for a long time, we fell out of touch, and then about a year ago, or two years ago, you kind of, how long are you sober now? 
Do you well, mind saying this, this is a sober this, podcast? This, this time around, it's uh, it's uh, twenty one months and uh, and, months. and uh, all right, all right, two all weeks. Right. I'll have twenty one months and two so, weeks in a couple days. So yeah. it was about twenty months ago. Forrest instant <laughs> messaged me. I didn't even know he'd relapse. So, <laughs> so see, that's the other thing about the, I really don't like the human disconnect of technology. Because you could have not said you relapsed. I was just thought, no, oh, that Forrest George is doing so great. Must be doing great if I but haven't heard from him. He's done something that so many people do, which is want to work in recovery. And so um, he's managing a sober living out in Thousand Oaks, a, a great place that this woman Gwen runs called La Ventana. You ever heard of that? Nope. They were a detox unit. Then they became the sh- full enchilada. And Forrest runs one of the houses of the outpatient, right? Uh, it's actually a PHP program house, which means partial hospitalization yeah. program. So they can't leave unless you go with them. Well, but who's they, with them right now? Well, they do. <laughs> they they actually have some some clients that are in intensive outpatient. So so I I have one. Is somebody one, at the house right now? No, not right now. The, the, <laughs> client, the, the client that no. uh, that just came in today is 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 at one of the other houses. Oh, okay. So it's it's too I bad we're not live. I'd tell. Them. So Chuck works <laughs> at Chuck works at Wavelengths in Huntington. I work ah. at Aloe in Malibu. And so what we do a lot is talk about treatment. <clears throat> a lot of people that listen to the podcast are counselors that are disillusioned by the con- 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 by the treatment industry and all the shenanigans that go on. And you and I, you've and you've been you've been sober a long time. Mike doesn't even know this world exists until this podcast. This cesp- <laughs> this cesspool of it the recovery a, it industry is a weird subculture. <laughs> you you really have to be sick to be interested enough to stick around. I love to tell people, man, give it a few months to see if it's what you want to do before you invest any time in an, in a, in an education. So that's what brings us to us. What made you want to get into this racket after 20 years of, of sobriety <coughs> and not sobriety? Man, I, um, I, you know, I had to, to, to try to figure out a timeline of, of um, different treatment that I've been in for this last treatment. Well, actually, the second to the last treatment center. How many treatment centers have you been in? So I, I counted, and um, as far as detoxes, sober livings, hospitals, and live-in residential treatment centers, I'm up to 16. <laughs> yeah. but, but I've worked not, for... Not a record I've, in this room, because worked, Bob's over here. I've worked but that's for pretty damn good. I've worked for four out of 16, though. <laughs> All right. So that so says this something. Six, this is the magic 16 right now. Sweet 16 and never been kissed. Sweet 16. So I went Perfect. to 24. You knew that. I told you that when, uh, when we were hanging out. So, And I don't think it's wrong to go and keep trying and figuring it out. But somehow, I do believe working in treatment, working at MAP, and it was Anthony Kiedis who told me to do it. I was... You know, I was working at Millie's. Everybody knows my story, kind of. I, I got sober. I was working at Millie's. Well, anybody and that counts knows your story. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I mean, people that listen to this. Uh, yeah. I, can, I can bet, Chuck, and you're challenging my narcissism, so <laughs> let me defend myself. I can bet that people listening to this podcast kind of know my story. I hope they've so, seen the movie. We've talked about it. I hope they have. If you haven't, so, it's called Bob and the so Monster. So I worked at Millie's, and then, and then luckily, out of thin air, I got to play music again, right? And, mm-hmm. and there was a lot of luck and great friends helping me and Josh Klinghoffer. So I got to play music, and that ended pretty quickly. Like I started playing, started writing songs again in 97, made a record in 98. It came out in 99. By the end of 99 or 2000, my music, my new music career was, was that almost bicycle over. Bicycle Thief? Huh? Yeah, Bicycle Thief. 
And so, so I went and volunteered at MAP. That's where I met Forrest. And, and, right. and it was because Anthony Kiedis, a good friend of mine who, who knew me well, just saw me getting more and more withdrawn and angry and all those things that we become when we're not working the steps, actually. And so what, what he said was, why don't you go volunteer at MAP? He's, he knows enough not to tell me shit. You know what I mean? If he told me, why don't you make a gratitude list? I would have punched him. <laughs> okay. You know what I mean? Right. But he said, why don't you? Because we all loved Map. You knew Buddy Arnold Forrest. We all loved this guy, Buddy Arnold. He was like he a was magical person. And so I went and just started volunteering at Map. And since, I, I can tell you this, since early 1999, I have worked in treatment every day. And that has to have something to do with how an asshole like me can stay sober. I'm telling you. Yes, do I go to 12-step meetings? Yes. Uh, do I have a sponsor? No. Did I have a sponsor for decades? Yes. Have I worked the steps through four times in AA and one time in Al-Anon? Yes. I believe I internally kind of understand the steps. I don't need to go to meetings and share about what step I'm on. But the fact that I worked in treatment, I think, is a huge contributor to my feelings of gratitude, my feelings of understanding that I have the disease of alcoholism. I mean, it's a constant reminder working in treatment. And what's strange is when I went to KDAC school or whatever the fuck you call it, mm. they told me that you were you were more likely to relapse if you worked in treatment. That's <clears throat> bullshit. Uh, no, no, but that's, see, you, you know who you are and you're a strong personality. And you were able to set personal boundaries. A lot of people don't set personal boundaries and they get lost in recovery. Do they? Working, uh, yes. working well, in it? Because, yeah, because they're, they're not, they don't know who they are. They're still finding out who they are. They're brand new and they don't set personal boundaries. And I see them get swallowed up by the machine. You see it happens all the time where they don't take their days off. They just want to be, they're part of it. They're part of the next thing you know, there's no personal time. There's no real life. There's no outside. There's only what they're doing and they get caught up in it and it's so sad well, there's to watch another they component. spit out. I don't know how, how you feel. I feel like music is another component of my sobriety, my love of music. Mm -hmm. It came back to me in sobriety. I hated music because I was a failure at it and you know, and all these people I knew were so successful at it and I was a fucking failure and fuck music. And, and once I was about a year sober, I heard the bends by Radiohead and it, it opened me back up to that kid who loved music again, mm -hmm. right? And so music, working in treatment, and, and, and the 12-step community really are, are, I don't know what's more important. You know that it, there's, for me, there's also getting to the beach. I don't know why, but that's kind of my, I get a, there's a centering that happens there that I hear people talk about with meditation, but being at the beach, music, uh, you know, there's friends, friends, friends there is sober. That, that's one of those things where if I don't have all those things going on when I'm not in a band, I'm going to see a lot more shows. Now that I'm, you know, for the last year, been playing with those guys, I haven't been to as many shows because I'm doing more music, but it's always important. We don't talk enough about his music. You've heard of him, right? I have it's heard weird, of him. Yes, I have. Right? I have heard Forrest of him. Forrest is, is, is as huge a music fan as, as I am. That's all we did mostly is talk about music and shows we've been to. You're wearing your dead hat, I see. <laughs> yes. Dude, can we talk about Dylan and the Dead for a second? Can we just talk honestly about it? 
Was it one of the worst shows you ever saw? In your I life? only saw one at, at Anaheim at, Stadium. At, that it was, was that was worse. Not, not very memorable. No. <laughs> <laughs> not very memorable. You're too chubby. I don't hate it. <laughs> You're too young to know about I Dylan in the Dead. I don't remember. Mike, it. did you go to Dylan in the Dead at Anaheim Stadium? It was the worst. Dude, you just got to take our word for it. I, I am the biggest Bob Dylan fanatic other than A.J. Weberman, right? And I didn't even know what songs they were playing most of the time. Is that how you felt? I, I, I'm told that the show they made up for it in Oakland. But yeah, the, I, the, the, uh, the Anaheim, the Anaheim that, show was a bummer. That's the heart of a deadhead right there. <laughs> they sucked when I saw them, but the next night it was it. awesome. Well, mainly because Jerry Garcia busted out the pedal steel, which was pretty rare for him to do. And in Oakland? Yes, yes. So you've been a deadhead your whole life, right? Was your dad a deadhead? Well, he produced Shakedown Street. Did he really? He really did. And, You're and, fucking kidding and, me. No, and, and, and there's actually a track um, where he sings lead vocal on Good Lovin'. You're kidding. No, and then... And I then, gotta get that. I uh, have that and then, record, and Shakedown then Street. On the, and the rehearsals that are on Archive, um, there's also, he plays the slide throughout and the solo. Were on, him and on, Jerry I Buddies? A, I Need a Miracle. Were That's him it. and Jerry Buddies? You know, I uh, he he did the session. They hired him to come in and do the session because they liked what you know they liked his ability. And he, uh, did he play guitar with them? He arranged jam with them. Well, like I say, he he did he did do this the lead vocal on one one good loving track, and then the backing vocal on another good loving track. So there's two good lovings that he's on, and then I need a miracle. He is plays that the, the one with on. the girl sings? The girl and the keyboard player was her husband. Right. That's yep, the album. Yep, right. Yep. I have that album. Gotcha. I got it. Yeah. You know how many albums I have, Chuck? <clears throat> About 5,000 are sitting oh. in that house next door. Wow. I got to go look through and find that. I, I know. It's a, like a drawing of a street, right? Yeah, shake that. Yeah, street, I got yes, that. Yes. So. So how, you know, do you mind talking about, like, trauma, childhood? We all no, know. I've, You've been I, in 16 rehabs. You must have I've, I dug up that trauma. stuff. I had a lot of trauma. I've had, I've had two parents die as a, as, a, as a result of drugs and alcohol. Wow. I've had a grandmother die from drugs and alcohol, and I've had a stepfather yeah. that dry, died as, it's a, a, deadly as disease. a result of drugs and alcohol. And so that's that's four, four members uh, uh of my family, but close, 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 close family. Members. But you've you've been fighting the good fight to stay sober. Your sister's all right. Like, isn't it weird how randomly it hits? Because I have two sisters that have no idea of what we're even fucking talking about. Yeah. How did they not get it? They they were raised <laughs> by the same fucking wolves. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? And not to say that our parents were wolves, but they weren't. They obviously didn't do something. <laughs> that we needed right and we talk a lot about parenting in the show that i think we're doing wrong parenting again we're being too nurturing too attentive that's why millennials are a fucking nightmare all the kids that live in your house are a nightmare aren't they <laughs> I, you know i don't want to speak for you what's it like to be a baby boomer trying to talk to a millennial about rules how does that go for us you know i mean um I, I, it's my main my main job is to make sure they're not getting loaded to get them to meetings and and try and try to get them to you know to keep the house clean. Do they have to clean the house? They so do. Yeah, that's. How that, does that work? Well, I mean, the, the one, <laughs> one, like pulling teeth. Uh, yeah. The one kid is not not the neatest kid I've, I've met, but, <laughs> but you know he's twenty he's twenty years old, and so I, I I can understand. I'll tell you a funny story. A friend of mine's daughter, who who, who was in treatment at Aloe with me, right. And, and I heard that she's 
paying people to do her laundry. <laughs> Does that happen at your house? No, oh, no, no, no. Okay. No, no. <laughs> so, but paying people to do her laundry, right? And so I confront her on the smoking patio. I was like, listen to me. You're not going to pull that bullshit in my rehab. And she's like, what, what? Because, you know, I've known her since she was a kid. And I'm like, you're not going to pull that bullshit. And she goes, she goes, what? Oh, the laundry thing? And I was like, yes, the laundry thing. You're, you're paying people to do your laundry? And she goes, not really. I'm just giving them rides and buying them smoothies. And I was like, oh. that's, that's bribing that's Bribing. Is it bribing or paying? It's I something. it's kind of bribing, it's yeah. It's not the rules of a rehab. Right. So I take her in the thing. And I go, I go, get your dirty clothes. Come on. I want to see you do it. Right? And, and it be, turned into a therapeutic thing. She uh-huh. really didn't know how a washer worked. And that's a good idea. How fucking and I crazy sh- is I should that? probably start to do like some stuff asshole, like that, too. Right? I agree. They really don't know which one you put it on. You're right. Maybe rather than just telling them to go clean the room, I could actually maybe assist, assist once yeah, or twice. Yeah, or just maybe. show them, like, <laughs> I always use this cycle. They don't know permanent right. press versus whites versus colors. They, they don't really know because their parents have done everything for them. Now, luckily, people like you and I, Divorced, were raised by wolves. If we didn't wash our own clothes, there was never going to be any clothes, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, my mom wasn't going to wash clothes. She was being too fabulous. <laughs> she had her I Magnum Mumu with her jewelry and her. She wore. She used to. Before I saw Hunter Thompson with the with the cigarette plastic thing, my mom had. Those. I need one of those. My fingers are turning yellow. <laughs> you need the Hunter. So there used to be the kids at home for the vapors at home. <laughs> yeah. There used to be these the things that you put your cigarette, cigarette on. Cigarette holder. And, yes. And you would smoke through it, and somehow it got the tar out. That's what my mom. Aqua filters. I guess what they Aqua are. Yeah. For the, that's what they're called. And yeah, and I thought they you, looked cool. And so my mom, yeah. just my memories of my mom, are she's just so fabulous. With a scotch on the rocks in her hand and one of those plastic cigarette holder things. She was not doing my laundry. She was too fabulous. You know what I mean? And and so I had I, I don't know when I learned how a washing machine works. Probably at eight years old. Well, they, they show you wow. those right? things. Well, you wow. learn. And that's why the, the tried and true method that I've been doing for a long time is to tell them, you know, I don't know if you've used a machine like this before. Instead of calling them out. And saying you don't know how to do this, do you? Because that's what it is. From they the really don't but, know. But how you know, to do hey, it. if if you're not familiar with this kind of machine, this will work for this. Make sure you only put the colors together. You know, make sure you keep well, the white separate. It, you know, with was, this machine, you know, make it like it like you're instructing. But I mean, generally, I mean, if you get too many rules, they're gonna just overload with rules. So the, that's what I did with this girl. I, I realized like. And she said, you just put this stuff right in? I said, I do. You can put it down that side thing, but I don't do that. I just said how I do it. You know what I mean? I'm sure she's still doing it how I do it, which is probably not good for girls' clothes, but whatever. No, but she At can least buy she new knows stuff. how to fucking not have to buy people smoothies to do her laundry for her. And so that's my experience with sober living because Aloe started as a sober living. Gwen, who you work with, knew that. Knew, uh-huh. I knew her from back then. That was only like five, six years ago. We were just a sober living with me. And she said Ab- that you, ha- you have referred clients to her. Constantly. Her, yeah, to her. It's the greatest is, detox. That's awesome. Right? And so it's called La Ventana. If you're looking for treatment, that's a good one out in Thousand Oaks. And you'll meet the mighty Forrest George. Now yeah. let's talk the about music, mighty. Forrest. You host the Little Feet uh, radio show, right? 
I do. I'm a co-host of the Little Feet Radio Show. My friend in Kentucky, Earl Guthrie, is um, the one that that uh, puts puts it together mostly there, and I'm 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 the one that chimes in with uh, lyrics to all the songs, links for where you can purchase the, the okay. The material, so Mike is here. Reviews on all the material. We need to tell Mike Wikipedia about this radio links, show. All that right. kind of thing. So so there's a couple things I want to know. Who's Captain Steamboat Willie? Who is that? Uh, Crazy Captain Steamboat Willie. Uh, you know, I, I I think he probably is a fictitious character. Um, <laughs> Your but, dad would just make shit up. Yeah, yeah. How? Yeah. I only can write things about people I know. Look at Mike's got the door open because he <laughs> wants to. He's, Look at he's, he's never in here. Yeah, he's, he's never. never in here. He doesn't even listen to the podcast. He goes and watches TV while we're doing. It. <laughs> <laughs> Mike Martz in the fucking studio listening to the tidbits about Lowell George. That's great. So he just he had the ability like the Brides of Jesus is another great song. That is like, a great one. Yes. What is that about? Like, where does the guy? Because your dad grew up here, right? In Hollywood, yeah. In Hollywood, how does he fucking write songs about the brides of Jesus and truck drivers and shit like that? He's like a Hollywood kid. How did he do that? Do you know? Um, you know, well, I, 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 I that is a good question, especially since Willen was was written so early in their career. You know, but was he a reader? He did like to read, and he loved all kinds of different kinds of music. So he had, he had a very So it was built on, he, did he like Appalachian music and blues music? And Helen and, Wolf was his idol, musical idol. Oh, really? And, and did he ever what, meet him? And, and did he ever meet Helen Wolf? He did meet, meet Helen Wolf What once. did he say to him, well, you know? Uh, it was at a big jam session. Uh, he jammed with no, Helen Wolf? No, no, no. Like, <laughs> <laughs> nope, but he made up for it in Oakland. <laughs> I think Eric Clapton was there, Buddy Guy, maybe B.B. Um, maybe B. B. King. In Chicago, uh, in Chicago. And, and, and Lowell, Look at Mike's coming back in again. <laughs> and Lowell, Lowell had a new new Stratocaster. You and, call and your dad, he, Lowell. It's he, your dad. He brought, he brought, it's your dad, dude. He brought the guitar to, 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 the, to Wolf and, and said... Here, man, I got this new guitar. Here, play my guitar. And and Alan just looked at him and said, "Fuck off." <laughs> <laughs> and, and so, and then Lowell would go into apolitical blues after he told that story. Yeah, uh, that would that would be the in, in, intro now. intro to that song. Yeah. Telephones yeah. ringing. Yeah. Yeah. Van Halen did that song. Van Halen did do that song, which right. is probably the only time you will hear Eddie Van Halen play the slide guitar. Oh, really? He's got ah. tiny tiny little hands. You know that. No, I did not. So know that. I, I, are they like trunk hands? No, he, no, they're fat. His fingers are so fat. What? Eddie Van Halen, the amazing guitar player. But so I always think of <laughs> when I see Eddie Van Halen play guitar, I think of of um, the French guy that had only three fingers. Django Reinhardt. Django Reinhardt. Yes. Yeah, it doesn't look like Eddie Van Halen's fingers can play that music. There's such, you know, weird little... He has sausage weird fingers? Ha- he has big ha- fingers, yeah. Huh. Not not long, wide. No, no. wide. Dwayne Allman had really long fingers. Did he? He did. So, so the how... Hell that he be- the hell Look at he- Mike, he's just chiming in, hey, the producer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I want to know about weed, watch and why. <laughs> Look at how excited he is. <laughs> Have you ever seen Mike so no. animated? <laughs> Mike Mart, our producer, is going nuts right now because because Forrest's dad is his favorite musician. Yes. Well, one time I I'll tell you a story. So Mike is from Sunset Beach, 
Oh, poo-foo, ta-ta. And mm-hmm. tries to act like he's some country hillbilly. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I'm from Inglewood, right? Los Angeles. But we somehow in the late mid to mid eighties to like eighty eight, we we became Americana before Americana was. Mm-hmm. And there's YouTube evidence to prove it. Doing your dad's songs, doing old blues songs, doing twenties, Blind Lemon Jefferson, and we were doing it before there was a genre for it, right? And 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 it's weird that your dad. I knew your dad's from Hollywood. Your dad's from Hollywood. Mike's from Sunset Beach, which for you across the country you don't know. Sunset Beach is like yuppie fucking beach between Orange County and L.A. Right? Well, it, it's it, yuppie. Not, not back when I grew up. It was like just you know there was a train. It ain't it hillbilly Appalachians like you. <laughs> go on, go on. So so, but somehow the the what your dad tapped into is this richness, and Flea has an idea about this. People that have no cultural identity will adopt one. If they're seekers, uh, they'll go find one. Yep. Right. But and of our of our group, we were probably the only people that were just like, well, you know, I mean, we were singing his songs at gigs, and people were like, what's that song? That's a great song you wrote. You know? <laughs> yeah, they no. had no idea. They're punk rockers, man. It's like, the 80s and 90s, they're like what? Well, I'll tell you That's one of the great. greatest things. One of the greatest things in Mike and I's history. So we started playing acoustic shows because Thelonious. We were told by managers that we played too much, right? We played <laughs> too, too many much. shows. Yeah, because we all needed dope money. So anybody that said, "Hey, will you play?" we'd be like, "Sure." Bogarts. We would play four times in one week across L.A. And like Fishbone and Chili Peppers, who were our peers, they would never play. Yeah, they and called so, it saturating so, the market. Yeah, saturating the market. We had these <laughs> managers telling us. So, so me and Mike came up with this thing. Well, me and Michael just play. It won't be Thelonious, (laughs) right? So we can make dope money without those guys. And we were pretty successful at it. And so we played with Dave Van Ronk and and some of our heroes. And I remember one time, um, Willie Dixon, the great Willie Dixon, who I'm sure your dad loved. He was one of my favorite blues artists. Okay, so he liked me and Mike for some reason because his grandkids had a band and we would have them open for Thelonious Monster. I loved that his, his grandkids, like, 15 years old, just playing old blues music. It was great. So Willie Dixon invited me and Mike to play at this, the Blues Society dinner. I don't know if Mike Mike remembers that. (laughs) Mike just remembered. I can tell Mike remembered. So Willie Willie sets it up like, no, it's going to be great, man. And so we go play this. This is like in 1988. We play the Blues Society dinner with all rich people dressed in tuxes watching... Johnny Shines, who played with uh, with uh, with uh, Robert Johnson, he was like eighty years old. This mm. other old blues the guy, guy sits down like yeah, they they can barely walk. And then Willie Dixon, right? But then me and Mike opening, right? And so we go out there and we're playing our Lowell George and our Bob Dylan and our Blind Lemon Jefferson. And there's just this whole silence. There's no clapping in between. It's just like, <laughs> what are these punk rock white dudes playing? We want to see, you know, what we want to see. I won't say it because it's politically correct times. We can't say it. But um, they wanted to hear old blues music by old black guys. They didn't. Want you to can say that. That's okay. They didn't want uh, two white punk rockers, right? So we're just bombing. Like and Mike, Mike didn't notice a lot of things in Thelonious Monster, or or, but he knew that we were bombing. Like people were not, they were looking at their watches. Like when do these punk rock white kids get off? 
So then we walk in the dressing room. I'm so disappointed. I'm thinking we're playing with Robert Johnson's dude and playing with Willie. And just with so much expectation, which we know as alcoholics will always let us down. And we're just sitting in there. And Mike's like, fuck it. You can tell Mike's packing up. He's leaving. He's going to get crack and heroin and forget <laughs> about what just happened. And I'm sitting there just bum out, almost crying. And Willie Dixon comes over me. He sits next to me and goes, he taps me on the knee and he goes, oh, man, everyone have an off night. Let's go have some chicken. Mm-hmm. And he took me mm-hmm. <laughs> to have chicken. <laughs> Willie yeah. Dixon, yeah. right? Oh, man, everyone have an off night. Let's go get some chicken, right? Jeez. And he took me out to have chicken. How great is that? That is awesome. Yeah. So, so we played your dad's music, and Mike is so excited that you're here. But let's talk about what it's like to be a hero's son. I mean, you get this a lot, I would imagine. What Mike is doing? Look at he's looking at you right now. <laughs> <laughs> Not enough, actually. Not enough. Well, you got it. You got it. No, I mean, out. I, I, um, I have a lot of friends on Facebook. I have two accounts. One of them has five thousand friends, like yours, that is yeah. full. And then I, so I opened a second account, and um, yeah, it's all, it's, it's all people touched by your dad's re- music. Re- it's filling up pretty quickly. A lot, a lot of them are, yes. Well, I think we talked about it when, when. When when we worked together and we saw each other so much, um, it's a it's a heavy burden to carry, right? And and one thing, so you're a musician. Being a musician of a musician is fucking hard. I know mm-hmm. my son's thirty one, they're mm-hmm. gonna be thirty two. He's always like wanted to distance himself from Thelonious or Chili Peppers or any of that shit. But then he also grew up with us on stage with us and loving it. And it's a weird combo. Right. Right? It's hard. Sean Lennon talks about it a lot. I one time he loves was the music, but he hates the attention. But but mm. being this the son of a legend, which your dad is, which you know, uh, uh, I've been in that the circles of musicians my whole life, right? So I'm at the Wilton Theater, which you've been to a thousand times, I'm mm. sure. And Rufus Wainwright is an acquaintance of mine, and his second album had come out, Poses, right? Greatest album. I don't know if you've ever been into him. He's a great songwriter. So, so he's playing the Wiltern, and here's who's there. Um, uh, 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 Teddy Thompson, uh, uh, the guitar player Thompson's son, uh, you know, that made the Bright Lights record with his wife. What's the famous guitar player, English guitar player, Mike Thompson? Right? Anyways, he's an English musician, folk musician, son. Stephen Stills' son, Chris. Um, Rufus is the McGarrigal sisters and Wayne, Rufus, uh, and uh, Loudon Wainwright's mm-hmm. son. Sean Lennon is there. And I'm just sitting in, and Bijou Phillips, John Phillips' daughter. <laughs> and I'm just sitting in this room with these kids. And I'm like, these motherfuckers got a bad hand dealt to them, right? <laughs> this is just the this is a room of kids who are never going to live up to what their parents were, were like, right? And but Rufus was one that was just at at a pinnacle, right? He was a guy, he was equal to like Elliot Smith at that time, and and his dad walked in, and I thought you know uh, 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 Wainwright, uh, what's his Loudon Wainwright walks in. He had dead skunk in the road during your dad's era. And he walks in, and I'm thinking, like, what do the parents think of this burden they give to their kids, right? I just don't, nobody really talks about it, right? I'm sure you've been living it your whole life. It's a weird thing. You love your dad. 
you you love his music. You like uh, some musicians' kids. Uh, Sean Lennon said, "I learned about my dad through playing his music." Right? Because he was only like five when his right. dad died. Yeah. Tragic. How old were you when your dad died? I was ten. My sister was five. That's fucked up, right? So and you're so living. I, I only saw I only saw my father play play t- two shows. One one was Little Feet at the Shrine. In '78, and then one was uh, the Lowell George solo band in Topanga in '79. Oh, and then he died that month. Oh, you're kidding! So and how I, did you? So I really, I really only have like five, five memories of my dad that are really special. And um, you know, one of them was like going fishing with him and catching my first. He fish. has a song about fishing with your brother, uh, right? Yeah, yeah. Right. So my my uh, my was, my, bro- my brother Jed is uh, he's six months older than me. And uh, yeah, Lowell, he was kind of you know he was he was Lowell's, Lowell's fishing buddy. So really, so, and, yeah, what, and it's and it was there guitars around your house all he, the time. He's in the sailing shoes. Uh, uh, sings about him in sailing shoes, and then Lowell, and then Lowell and my brother Jed, um, they they collaborated on a song on a song Twenty Million Things to Do. Really, which is on Lowell's solo album. Yeah. How old, you, how much older you, is your brother? He's six months older. So I you know different I, mom obviously. Yeah yeah. It's impossible. <laughs> it's physically impossible to do. Unless you're a hamster. <laughs> <laughs> you don't appear to be a hamster. Did Lowell know Townsman's aunt? I'm not sure about that. They all knew each other. I mean, some of the bands that I got turned on to in Lowell's record collection... Um, I, How come I, you refer like, to him as Lowell? I, I would say would be like Steely, Steely Dan was a big one that I got turned on to. Um, no, but there's something strange I'm tapping into here. Uh, My son calls me Bob and uh, refers to me as Bob. I don't like that. What is that? What is? Why do you say Lowell instead of my dad? Uh, main, main, mainly for the listeners, I suppose. Oh, okay. So you you think of him as your dad? I call him dad. Yeah. 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 So pops, dad. Were there were there guitars <laughs> around your house? There were guitars around. Yeah. But he did he I, play? I am, did I am, he play am, around the house or no? Uh, a little bit. I mean, mostly when he, he was cutting his his uh, solo album, he had the, the Rolling Stones mobile mobile truck in the driveway. Really? I remember that. I remember mm. that he would he would be working in, in his in a garage. In one of those. A garage yeah. that was turned into a studio. And then you've you got to go out in the trailers mm-hmm. where the recording equipment is, yeah, right? Yeah. Yeah, I remember. I, 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 we did That's something cool. with one of those one time, Mike. You don't remember. Do you remember <laughs> anything? I do. <laughs> <laughs> I remember something. <laughs> the important stuff. But they, yeah, they bing this truck that pulls a whole studio inside yeah, it. Yeah. And then the truck leaves and they just leave the thing there. Yeah. Right? We did that one time. Didn't go so well. Huh. Anything Thelonious did didn't go so well. Drugs are bad, right? Were other people in your <laughs> dad's band on drugs? Not really. Some, I don't think. I doesn't some, seem like it. I mean, my 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 um <clears throat> my uncle my uncle uh, was the drummer, Uncle Richie. Uh, by ma- he's my uncle by but marriage. But he left though, didn't he? Uh, no, he was with the band the whole time, except for one brief period um, where they had the Earth, Wind, and Fire drummer play. Oh, really? Yeah, Marcus Fre- Fre- White? Freddie White. Oh, Freddie White. Freddie White, White yeah. the singer's brother. Uh, I knew that. Uh, right? Uh, How weird is... See, singer's brother, uh, singer's brother. See uh, the levels of music? So the way I found out about your dad was Sid Strong, Michael Stipe did I've Been the One on a Golden Palomino's, a weird known punk rock record in New York. Really I loved interesting, it. Yeah. I then got the first record... Then, I don't know how Mike found out about it. Then Steve Wynn of Dream Syndicate was a huge fan of your dad. And so we recorded your dad's songs. Like, I don't know where the tapes are. We mm. just became obsessed with, like, there's, like, three people we were obsessed with. Dylan, Lowell George, 
and John Prine. Those three were the kings of songwriting to the songwriters of the 80s in L.A., mm-hmm. right? And, and it's weird. I, like I, I, and that's when we met, and I was just like, I wasn't going to be like Mike, but I really was like Mike. But I was much cooler and not as obvious <laughs> as, as Mike is being. Mike, but it, you need a microphone. But my dad died when I was 15. I think 10, 10 yeah. I just have idealized memories that I know aren't true of my dad. Mm-hmm. Right? Because I, fishing was a big one. My dad was a big fishing guy. And I have a picture in my living room of me and my dad on a boat fishing. I don't remember it. I idealize it. Right? I remember... One time he just came to my room and said, come on, Bobby, you're not going to school today. And we went and got in the truck and with the boat was hooked up to the truck and we went down to Salton Sea and we went fishing all day and we boned the fish on the shoreline and cooked it in a, in a bonfire. I remember that. I was probably like eight, mm-hmm. right? But mostly he was just like a weird guy around the house that I, you know, he'd go in his part of the house and he'd watch the news or do business. He was like a businessman, like a supermarket guy. And he'd do business. And we were all kind of just scared of him, distant from him. That wasn't parents like how I'm a parent to my kids. Mm-hmm. My kids kiss me on the mouth. Did you see that? <laughs> uh, no, but that, you know, yeah, that affection. Know. You it's see you. Tom Brady got a bunch of shit because his 10-year-old son kissed him on the mouth. What? Like, what? Yeah. Like, my kids, Elvis still curls up in my, he's big, too. And it's like, I'm, dude, you're hurting my legs. Yeah, you know. And you want to <laughs> cuddle and stuff. I didn't have that with my dad. But somehow, I just took it away. So you've got this curse that it's this music thing. My dad was just a dad who really wasn't a dad to me, but other than like a superhero dad that took mm-hmm. me fishing and took me to Dodger games and took me to, took me to things. Right? I heard in one, 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 one of the podcasts you said that he built supermarkets. Yeah, yeah. Thrifty okay. Mart. Uh-huh. You grew up in L.A., right? Remember the Big T's? Mm-hmm. My dad built all those. Wow. That was my dad's supermarket, Thrifty Mart. Huh. And now is smart and final. Ah. Uh, hmm. Right? But um, he was a horrible businessman and got fucked out of the whole thing. <laughs> 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 Which is another, you know, I just, I loved him, but, but you know, he didn't, he didn't leave a lot behind. You know what I mean? And, uh, but, but when your dad dies, is your dad still alive? Yes. Yeah, you're lucky, see? Mike's dad lived to, to uh, Mike, how old were you when your dad died? In your 40s? How old was I? Yeah. I remember when Mike's dad died. Yeah, what? 47, 45. Yeah. Can you imagine what it's like for these guys, Forrest? We, like, have these idealized dads, and you got to listen to the records and live with all that. It's kind of weird thing. And then freaks like Mike Mart want to fucking know everything about your dad. <laughs> I got this, you know, people know that Thrifty Mart was my dad's thing, so they send me these email pictures of, of Thrifty Mart. Do you know, were you born in L.A.? I, I know the Remember big tees. I know what you're talking dad, about. Yeah, my exactly dad built all about. those. When I was a kid... I used to go up in the boom truck with them, and I used to stand up on top of the tees. There was a ladder that went up through the middle, and they were all neon, so the neon needed to be replaced all the time when it blow out or break, oh, right? Cool. And my dad just liked getting on the truck and doing shit and fishing, but uh, but it is weird, right? It's a weird, and I think it's what haunts us to a certain extent. My sisters hate my dad. Really? They they have nothing good to say about him, you know, and I don't. 
I kind of defend him all the time. I become the defender of him. You know, though, as, I know he was an alcoholic. Right. I know he was abusive and mean and grumpy sometimes, right? But he took me fishing. But you know, they're they're holding up holding them up to modern standards probably too. Like he wasn't the dad of today, but he was the dad of back then too, and it was a it was a different time. It was a different time. I mean, it wasn't my dad's fault that in, in 1977, when I'm 10 years old, that he was a different person than I am with my seven-year-old right now. You know, my seven-year-old sits on my lap. He kisses me. He tells me he wants to marry me. I don't, <laughs> I don't weird it. I don't, I don't make it any weirder than it needs to be. No, there's All that love. means is that there's he there's... loves me, and he loves me so much he thinks marriage is the ultimate symbol of love, and he wants to marry me. I think that's bitching. I'm not going to do anything to stop that because my dad didn't do that with me. It wasn't because he was bad. It's because that wasn't what was modeled for him. He didn't learn that. So what are, what are your real takes on it? You think that he did the best he could. That's what they all did. I mean, we got to kind of accept that. Yeah. But it is an abandonment and a loneliness and a weirdness. And I can't imagine what it's like to like constantly be coming in contact with people that like idealize your dad. It's a hard thing. I'm, gra- I'm grateful for the body of music that he left behind. And um, I'm, I'm grateful that, that people are still buying his releases and... and and that I get money occasionally from it. <laughs> it's a good thing. It's a good thing. Um, I am truly grateful. I really am. And um, my dad and, had a college you know, fund for me. I got to go to college. Right. I, I, <laughs> uh, you went to Cornell for four months. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he, he, he's a good fact. Remember? Yeah. Uh, no, but I went to junior colleges forever because as long as I, I went to college, I get the money. Did six, you have that? Six years, you Did said. Did you I have think. that? Well, I, I I was a full-time art student at the San Francisco School of Art for two years and had a 3.4 grade point average. And what happened? Cocaine or I what? I had a seizure in class. <laughs> they, they, kept, they kept telling me not to come to class high, and so they finally, I actually got expelled from art school. You know, my dad was an alcoholic. Wow. What was your What was your dad's drug of choice? Cocaine, I would imagine, seventies. Yeah, it was mostly cocaine, and then and then some of the you know he he would sing about about weed and also sang about pills. Like you know, the Quaaludes were popular in the seventies, uh, as were uh, like Yellow Jackets too and Reds. So Reds, what's weird? Quaaludes, Yellow Jackets. But let's think about your dad's running buddies. So Danny Korchmar, mm-hmm. right? Um, Henley, those guys, Linda Ronstadt, all that posse, they all had drug problems, but they didn't, they didn't, they somehow got out of it. None of them claimed sobriety. That's another thing that I'm, I'm starting to see generations of addiction where not everyone has to end up like us going to AA every day, but a lot right. of people wise up and change, right? Nine out of Do ten. You understand right? what I'm saying? Somehow, People outgrow their wild years of cocaine and drugs and quaaludes or whatever. There's a lot of 70s peers of your dad's that didn't end up like Joe Walsh in AA, mm-hmm. but didn't end up dying of drugs either, right? Do you think your dad's thing was just a mistake? I've always thought about it. I think it's just it really a mistake. was, yeah. Like, really and, and Jerry, too. Mm-hmm. Jerry was a huge mistake. I don't think that they should have had him in a, in a, in a rehab that was not a, a medical, medical, medical unit because he was too unhealthy, right? Yeah. So do you know the story? So him yeah. and his dad are very similar stories. Uh, uh, Jerry Garcia and his dad. So his dad died at, in a hotel, mm-hmm. right? Um, just from doing just an everyday amount of what I would think, probably what he typically did, right? But, but health and... Fitness and whatever. It all played a part. It all played a part. 
And same thing with Jerry, but Jerry died in a rehab center. Did you yeah. know that? Yeah, yeah. You no, did? I did know that because I was I was attending dead shows to eat acid, not to go in, but to go to the dead shows. <laughs> they, they play in Irvine and Long Beach, and the shows in Irvine, the parking lots in Irvine and Long Beach were amazing. It I don't was know pretty what the shows amazing, were like. I have to admit. They were so absolutely there was amazing. punk rockers? There were punk rockers going to dead shows <laughs> just to yeah. take drugs? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> And hippie chicks and tents, but the you know it was it was it was a blast. Did you have a mohawk? No, not then, not then. I did. You have colored hair. You didn't. Yeah, look, no, you no. You didn't I, look like a dead. I head. did. I did not fit in. I did not. I did not. But you were well. welcome in the freakazoids of the dead. Absolutely, head. absolutely. And then it was one of those things where they were all telling me, "See, dude, that's why you don't quit drugs because it killed Jerry." Oh, and really? I, they would say that. Don't quit drugs because it killed That's Jerry? what killed him. It, it, because that was like the one thing missing. It was like the rust in the car holding it together. And oh. and, and I liked that idea and I held on to it. Interesting way to look at I it. I was eating enough acid <laughs> at the time that it all fit. Did they give it to you for free? Hippies? Share it? No. Or you had to buy oh, it? Are you kidding me? You had no. to buy it? Oh, yeah. Uh, then you got to rent a tent or what rent happened? a van or something. <laughs> what happened? How many, how many dead shows have you been to? For Man, us? I saw The Grateful Dead 175 times. <laughs> Is that it? And, and Jerry Garcia band 50 times and Bob Weir 20 times so that in 10 years. Want to so hear my Bob Weir lot. story? It was a lot. It was a lot. I, we haven't seen each other in a long time. So I did a soundtrack with Bob Weir about 10 years ago, right? Uh-huh. And we had, it was a movie soundtrack. Is that the, the one with the Dylan? Yeah, moon, yeah, yeah. The, the Dylan, Moonshiner then. Bob you do, Dylan You do thing. Moonshiner right. on it? Yeah, okay, yeah. Okay, yeah. So, like so they're having the movie premiere today. in San Francisco, right? And then <laughs> all the people that did the soundtrack are going to play at the after party, right? Yeah. So it was like me, John Doe, um, Nels Klein, and I, Nels Klein and I did that moonshiner thing. And so Bob Weir is there, and we're all in this dressing room. We all see the movie. Ramblin' Jack was there, probably a friend of your dad's, right? And, and Jack I sat next to during the movie, and we're walking out, and I go, because I thought of the Dylan characters that, that, that uh, the actress, Charlotte, uh, whatever her name was, that played Bob Dylan, the girl. Uh, it, uh, don't look. It's called "I'm Not There," uh. and it's a girl plays Bob mm-hmm. Dylan in one era. There's uh. different people. Heath Ledger does it. I thought Heath Ledger was the most like Bob Dylan, and Jack, who's been friends with Bob Dylan since he was before he was Bob Dylan. I go, don't you think Heath Ledger was really good as Dylan in the in the like? you know, uh, Desire era. That was the best. Great, great period and, for him. And he goes, no, what are you talking about? She said, that girl, I forget what her name is, the famous actress, played Bob Dylan in the movie. Oh, I'm going blank. I have no idea. Uh, look, look it, it up. up. Google <laughs> So, So, yeah, everybody Google shit. So, so Jack says, no, she was spot on. I go, dude, it was obvious that it was a girl the whole time when you're looking at her, you're thinking that's that famous actress trying to act like Bob Dylan. That fucked me up. And he goes, you didn't know Bob. Shut up. <laughs> that's how Ramblin' Jack is, right? So we go to play the show, and we're in the dressing room, right? Bob Weir and his friend are walking by the different people because he's like the ambassador of San Francisco, right? He's Bobby, right? So he's talking to everybody about how they got hooked up with doing the song or what bands they're in and stuff. Was and it Kate so, Blanchett? Well, Kate Blanchett, yes. Mm. Uh-huh. So then, so then, um, so he comes to me and Nels. Like Nels played guitar and I sang, right? Who played so, harmonica? Um, uh, Joe Henry, the wow. producer. So, so, so we. But he didn't play that night. He wasn't there. But 
But so Bob Weir comes up to us with his friend and goes, "What? What? What do you? What do you guys? Do? What do you guys do?" And I said, "Well, <laughs> I was in a band years ago called Thelonious Monster, but but Nels is in Wilco." And Bob Weir's eyes lit up and goes, "Wilco!" And he talks to his friend. He goes, "Remember that group we saw when we took shrooms?" Wilco! <laughs> and the guy, the guy, the guy's like seventy-five years old, still going to shows, taking shrooms, seeing Wilco at the Fillmore. Like that's a dude that's full of life, right? <laughs> and so then he, he, he and he's t- telling his friend, "Remember we did shrooms, and we went and saw this band Wilco. You're a great band." He's talking to Nels, right? And so then he turns back to me and goes, are you in Wilco? You know, because Bob Weir's, you know, he's a little disconnected from reality. Mm-hmm. I said, no, I told you I had a band, and now I'm a drug counselor. And he stopped and he goes, drug counselor? What, what do you mean? And I said, I'm, I help people get off drugs. He goes, and he just, and he just walked away. <laughs> oh. <laughs> it was perfect. Like, you know, the, the welcome to San Francisco, other musicians, Thing ended when I said I was a drug counselor. Wow. I, I doubt Bobby's ever been in our predicament. Do you think? <laughs> I don't think he quite quite has the addictive personality, but I mean. But he certainly yeah. does have a. Imagine being <coughs> 75 and taking shrooms and going and seeing Wilco. I, you know what? There's something cool about that. I don't know. I don't, why do I envy that? Why do I want to be that guy? <laughs> Forrest is thinking about it. <laughs> How, I, I, how far away are you for us from 75? <laughs> you know, Wilco, Uncle Tupelo, any of them. I'll, hey, let's let's make a pact, the four of us, tonight. When I, Who's the oldest? Mike's the oldest. Mike, how old are you, 58? Yeah. So when Mike is 75, no matter how sober the four of us are, we're going to get together, go see Wilco, and take shrooms. What do you say, guys? In 17 years? <laughs> yeah, okay. Let's do it. I'll be 67. I'll, I'll, I'll. But to see that when you think about that, it's just so ridiculous because it's not about the shrooms that, that people have. It's about us, how wounded we are and fucked up we are. And however, we took our childhood and walked off with it and our coping strategies and, and some emptiness that it created. I believe you become alcoholic. I don't think you're born it. I think you, you have the pre... There's something there that could happen if the right life unfolds and then so then we lose our dads when we're kids we we cope with it in some way right you and i are very similar we're very people friendly very loving very kind of you know get along with everybody types right that makes you angry on another side like why does nobody care about me you know i'm making everybody happy right um i know that you're very giving and you let people stay at your house and shit like that Back I did until I lost my house. <laughs> yeah, <dude>. <laughs> <laughs> did you lose your house or do I, you not I have really it anymore? Did. I, I did. <laughs> Want to hear a great rock and roll story about houses? <laughs> so so when, when my friend John lost his house, Fushante, right? He was living in Silver Lake. And a friend of ours like, I didn't know he had lost his house to Fuck. the IRS, right? Oh, man. And so, so John has always been like really... Just focus on music. I don't know if your dad was like that. He didn't really. He didn't. Really, he doesn't really focus on money or gossip or other people's bullshit. Or he just kind of lives in his own guitar, piano, songwriting world, and always has since he. I've known him since he was 16. So he's staying at a friend's house since Los Feliz, right? And this mutual friend of ours sees him and goes, 
what happened to your house, John? And he goes, these guys just came and said that that wasn't my house anymore and told me to leave. These guys just came and told me it wasn't my house anymore and told me to leave. Wow. That's pretty much what happens when your house gets taken away by the IRS. These guys Mm -hmm. just came and told me that it wasn't my house anymore and I had to leave. That's sad. That's pureness. There's something so pure about that. That's just the facts of it. Well, yeah. And That's he, what and he didn't, go, he didn't go, the fucking government, man. <laughs> hey, just, you know what? It's just not mine. It's gone. I gave it away. I did it, I did it to myself. Did you lose I, it to I the did. IRS? No, to, to smoking cocaine every day. Oh, lost. didn't have the mortgage money? I, I had been taking out a sec- home equity line of credit against the house and borrowing against the house to support my drug habit and pay the mortgage. That has a uh, that's for, a finite for several years. You knew that that was a finite I thing. I did. I did, and and I, I I invested about thirty grand in the house. I bought the house for one hundred and eighty five thousand dollars. I put thirty grand into it and I sold it for six twenty five. But I was a half a million dollars in debt by then. <laughs> oh my God. So, so what, broke, what was so your escape plan? Almost broke even, right? It, what was in, your escape in a way, plan? In a way, it did kind of break even. Well, I was told that I could either keep my house or keep everything in it, and I just decided. Yeah, a lot of guitars. You still I got the guitars. I wanted to keep everything in it, and I still have everything that was in it. You got some of your dad's guitars. I do have some of my dad's guitars, like four of them. One picture, two pictures I have. I tell you all the time. I got a photo of your dad fishing on the beach. Yeah, yeah. Right? That's in my Laguna my house. Elizabeth took that photo, his it's wife, it. yep. Oh, really? Yeah. Where, what beach was that at? Topanga Beach. Topanga Beach at yeah. sunset, right? Right around there, yeah. So right that by, picture yep. is predominant, it's prominently at my, the Laguna place that I have because it's at the beach. Uh-huh. All right? And then I have this image of the live album with your dad with a white suit on. Uh-huh. What was the white suit about? Uh, he, he was just, wearing t-shirts and jeans, and all of a sudden he goes for the white suit. Well, he gained a lot of weight after after a mo- motorcycle ac- accident. Oh, really? Yeah. And so after after the motorcycle accident, he he p- packed on a lot of weight. You know. So the suit hit it. And so with the with the overalls, the overalls are a little more comfortable than. No, no, no. He was wearing a Jesus. white suit. Oh, I, I don't know. It's you a, like me. a you got to see a there's a video I'll of it. I'll have to check that out. He's wearing a white suit. I think it's live at the Roxy or something. Huh. It kind of has a I don't know. Kind of has a, a, a Saturday Night Fever look. <laughs> 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 uh-huh. Right? He's mixing all kinds of cultures. Uh-huh. Right? But you got to catch up with Lil Fee. I start, will start iPhone in your downloads right now. <laughs> no, you know I, it's funny because the first thing I did is I of course check in with with Noodles. I go, I go, hey. He's, his friend is in that band Offspring. Let's see what Noodles thinks of your dad. I, I, like, I, go, I like Offspring. I like that band for sure. Uh, I go, so I do you have like any questions for Forrest George, Lowell George's son? I'm not giving him any clues. And he goes, not at the moment, but let me listen to my vinyl copy of Dixie Chicken. And I'll see <laughs> if something comes up. Nice, man. <laughs> so it's like, you know, so that's <laughs> how am I the only guy in the room that's not hip? You know, the I'm only- probably going to recognize stuff when I hear it. Because my house was, I, I was raised in a house that was full of music. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm sure that I've heard, but it's like the same thing. I can't say his name. I don't, shouldn't say his name because I don't have his permission, but it was a guy in a band that had a number, a dog, and it wasn't Day, it was something else. Anyway, I had this guy in treatment, and I didn't know who the band was. I had to... Oh, three, you got to look it up. You know, no, so I went and I found, oh man, I know all these songs. Mm-hmm. Oh, I got a funny one about that. So I dropped out of music in 91, really, is when I just said, fuck it. 
I, that's when I got the second on the house and said, let's just fucking take it all right. away, right? That, that is a party. And you go into a couple of year blur where you just yes. have no idea of what's going on. Then you run out of money right. and you become more conscience, conscious again, right? Mm -hmm. So the, I have these black spots from 91 to like 94. And then I'm at Frenchie's house and I know that grunge, I knew Eddie Vedder, from, he's from, from San Diego. I knew that hmm. Pearl Jam had hit. I knew that some other band with this tall kid, which was Smashing Pumpkins, I kind of knew, but I had heard none of the music, right? And so, and Alice in Chains were hanging out a lot, right, in Hollywood. I loved them and, too. And, and I was them. sitting at Frenchie's house one day, and, and they were there, and then MTV was on, and they were on the TV, and, and I looked back at the couch at Lane and this other guy, <laughs> and I looked at the TV and I was like, there is something going on in music that I have no, f I'm so cracked out and doped out, I have no idea of what's going on. So luckily I survived that, mm -hmm. right? But I never heard any grudge, uh, grunge. I never heard Pearl Jam. I heard Teen Spirit, because that's a little earlier. That's 92, right? 91. Right, yeah. whenever Teen Spirit is. 91. So, but Nirvana Sounds was right. different. Nirvana I knew from being around Mike because Mike was friends with them. And, and mm -hmm. I knew Nirvana was an 80s band. The later ones, Pearl Jam, um, Alice in Chains, Stone Temple Pilots, those are 90s bands, right? So fast forward to 98, and the Bicycle Thief goes out opening a tour, which is Red Hot Chili Peppers headlining, Stone Temple Pilots in the middle, and Bicycle Thief. And mm. I'm sitting there the first few shows in the dressing room because we play first and then Stone Temple Pilots are on. And I've heard these songs before, you know, because <laughs> you can't escape it. You might not know what band it is, but when you hear Stone Temple Pilot songs, you've heard them because they're on the radio right. or they're coming out of somebody's car or, 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 or they're in the everywhere. Store or, for every yeah. And it was so funny. So I started telling Scott, like, I always thought those songs were Pearl Jam because Pearl Jam was the most famous band that everybody mm -hmm. talked about. Pearl Jam, Pearl Jam, Pearl Jam, Pearl Jam. Nobody really said Stone Temple Pilots. So, so all the songs that I kind of associate in my mind from 92 to 95 that are era grunge, right? I always thought they're Pearl Jam songs. No, they're Stone Temple Pilots songs, mm -hmm. dude. They they wrote great songs. Oh, no, yeah, they could ones. play for an hour and they'd be all, all good songs. songs you yeah. heard. Yeah, yeah no. right. It was crazy. Mike, are you talking on the phone? He is. The fuck is going on? You're a producer of a podcast, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> See, now he's bored with you. He's heard all your dad's stories. Now he's back to regular producer Mike watching TV and talking on the telephone, right? But so. So who are you talking to on the phone? John Ransom. John. So so when you're when you're in the Johnny sober living, Ransom. Hold on. When you're in the sober living and you're trying to teach, you're trying to loving. I know you're a loving guy, right? What if they don't want to go to outpatient tomorrow? What do you do? These are t t t you know t tricks of the trade. Let's say uh, the kid that's been in there for I've, I've been I've been at this house now for uh, for a month and a half and. Uh, he he is he's into it. He's, he's oh he's into he's, it. Yeah, he the no never has have an, a problem with him. Do a lot of people meeting. transition from your guys' detox unit to outpatient, and then just say, "I can't do this. I'm getting out of here." Yeah, sometimes I, we, we we have that happen had, all the time. <clears throat> we've had a couple couple people that only stayed for a week, you know, and and sometimes it's not it, it's not about whether they want to stay. It's it's a lot of times that it depends on their insurance company. Oh really? Yeah. 
Do you have people want to leave after detox? That's what I'm finding a lot. No, I find I, people want to get to the next level of care. They want to get out of the detox house and into because they hear so much. And we have it's integrated. So we've got uh, apartments attached to uh, the detox house and the detox house has people come in. Let me ask you a question. Are mm. they co-ed houses? That's why they want to go. No, we have. Mm. No, we don't. We don't have boys and girls in the same house. No. Oh, OK. Because that's one reason why people want to move along. But what I'm finding is people have been through rehab 10 times in the last two years. And they're like, they come to me like, Bob, do I really need to fucking go through this again and again and again and hear the same shit? And that's why I want to change the shit that they hear. And that's right. going to take all of us that work in it. They, they, we need to change the monotony of the fucking how are you feeling today? What's your signs and symptoms? What medication you're on? Medication time. We've become so brainwashed to think this is what treatment is. No, treatment is you and I were in it, Forrest. It's challenging. It's like fucks with you. It makes you laugh. It makes you feel a part of something. It makes you think. That's what treatment used to do. Mm -hmm. And now it doesn't. It's just like, how are you feeling? So you're bipolar, so you need to have your bipolar too, and you need to... You know, you know what's funny is, I was thinking about it. <clears throat> we used to have a lot of like ping pong tables and basketball courts, and there was like a small TV in like a big room. Yeah, you and used to have to you, watch TV you would hang together. Out, you would hang out and talk to each other more than you'd watch the TV. Or you'd go, you know what? Fuck this. Let's go play ping pong. Or you'd go, or let's go walk around the building or whatever it was that you were doing. But you did things with other people. Now it's so isolative. When you get your, your electronics back, hmm. it's faces in the, in the phones, mm -hmm. and that's it. There's no, there's not a lot of, there's not. There's but isn't that thing. anywhere you got a bunch of millennial, 20, uh, 20 year old kids together, they're all going to be on their phones. They're not going to be talking to each other. They take them away at, at the program I'm at. And, they and do? For, well, at, at, at when when you're in the. In PHP? Right. Well, you're, Re fuck. You're, you're, PHP, <laughs> they take the phones away. You're, you're allowed Dude, to, we or, only, or, let me tell or you something. you're allowed to have it, but it depends. Like, for a couple what, hours. Yeah, I mean, but you work you work your way up to having the the the. Dude, you know, we just only no phones phone. and detox, and then after that, we're just fucking. <clears throat> at at uh, at at Cry Help, where I was at for for four months, you know, you couldn't <laughs> you couldn't have a phone, you couldn't have your own phone at all until you went on job search. Right. And, well, you and, know, um, that's a, that's a big deal. And the men couldn't talk to the women, and you woke up at six in the morning every day and and started programming and had to. Well, let me tell you, your, I was in your there, room and not have any anything. Is that on the recently? Floor. Yeah, that was twenty two, months two, ago. Two, yeah, 20 okay, months so ago. I was in there in '95, uh -huh. and you could talk to girls, you could hang out with girls. Uh -huh. you could, well, you ruined whatever. it for everybody else. But, uh, but you could never have a phone ever. Uh -huh. You had to be leveled to work out to even leave the facility for five minutes. Right. right? That, that, and then that, your goal was, a bit. if you got a full-time job, you could move to the tea house, but even mm -hmm. there, well, in 95, there wasn't a lot of cell phones. Right? Right, right. No, there wasn't. But, I didn't but even you have couldn't them. have a car. What about that? You couldn't even have a car if you were in the tea house. If you were in, if you were working full time and going to evening outpatient, you still couldn't have a car. That I think that is crazy. That's crazy, right? I, I do. So, so guess where all these rules come from? 
all these punitive rules. I've been, I'm, I've been doing some research with Kira Baruth who did the Impact documentary. House. No, Synanon. <laughs> Synanon, Synanon, even before that. And I bet your dad yeah. knew some people that went to My Synanon. My stepfather knew some people that went to Synanon. Right? Yeah. Synanon is where all this punitive shit comes from. Attack, named, th- attack therapy. Attack therapy. Mm-hmm. And rigid rules, right? But guess what they had in Synanon that made it magical? You could have sex all the time. Huh. Right? It was the 70s. Wow. Right? So the one thing that made you put up with all the bullshit rules of Synanon, like you had to shave your head, you couldn't do this, you couldn't do that, you had to work full time or you were kicked out, you had to shut up and sit down and fuck you and gestalt confrontational therapy, you're a piece of shit, you don't know shit about nothing. They at night let you have sex. So that's why people put up with it. Nobody puts up with it if you don't get a reward for all that, mm-hmm. right? So it's amazing that it still exists in these pockets of the world, the, the behavior mod programs. Because Synanon, the granddaddy of all behavior mods, mm-hmm. lets you have sex because it was free love era. That's a trip. How crazy is that? So my friend Harold was in there. And <laughs> I did not know that. I did not know Harold, we through, Harold not Owens know from Music yeah, Harris was in there. Know that. He was 19 years old. Guess what? Wow. Dietrich's wife said, Hey, I fancy this young man. Oh, no. How bring fucking bring crazy this young man to me. So I'm saying, if you want to base treatment on Synanon, you better really understand Synanon. <laughs> there was a lot of free love going on. Mike's telling us we need to wrap it up. Um, listen. We, uh, I, I got something for you, Forrest. I've learned a lot since we were apart. I, um, I, Elvis was having troubles in, in his element in his uh, uh, preschool, right? Mm-hmm. And they came up with this saying at the neighborhood school, which you know is in L.A. Um, you get what you get, and you don't get upset. It's a new way of parenting to mm-hmm. stop rescuing your children. Mm-hmm. You, when your parents are, when your child is distressed, don't rescue them. And preach this mantra, you get what you get and you don't get upset. And I adopted it for addicts like us that are always kind of haunted by the memories of our parents and our childhoods and what the fuck and why do I feel so abandoned? Why can't I have a real relationship with somebody? And why do I mistrust and all this shit, the shit that we have? I adopted this thing for myself. You get what you get and you don't get upset. We got dads that were there for mm-hmm. us in ways that other dads weren't, and then, you know, they were gone in an instant, right? You get what you get, and you don't get upset. And I think it's a, a really powerful message. It's a new parenting message, right? It's, it's based, yeah. on, based on don't rescue your child. <laughs> it's you a nice way you, of saying suck it up. Yeah. You get what you get, and you don't get upset. Yeah. You, you, get, you, you know, you're dealing with the cards you got dealt. I mean... You can cry about it all day or you can make the best hand you can. I mean, that's it. And so we've programmed Elvis. So, you know, he's manipulative and he's crazy and he's going to be eight and whatever. And and, he's great. And he's great. But but somehow this thing that we programmed into him when he was three, if he's he was he was banned from technology for a week because he said he called the kid an asshole at school Mm -hmm. a couple of weeks ago. So. Yeah, and he was benched at school. At recess, he had to go in the principal's office, just like his dad, <laughs> right? Mm. And he didn't have technology, and he was here, and no technology. You know, you could watch TV if the family's watching TV, but no iPad, no YouTube, no no Xbox. And he was getting really mad about it because he was trying to manipulate me last Saturday night. 
And I said, you get what you get and you don't get upset. And he just stopped. He's been programmed like, that's it. Hmm. That's the fucking, that's the, those are words to live by. You get what you get and you don't get upset. And I'll leave you with that. Thanks, Forrest, for coming out and talking Thank with you us. Guys too. You can find Forrest so cool. at all the Little Feet website and radio show. You can go out to La Bantana and check in, and he'll be your house manager. Uh, there right? you go. There you go. <laughs> that would be free. Mike might do it just to hang out with you and hear stories about your dad. Hey, Mike, do you need a month tune up in sober living and just talk about Lowell George all day? Sure. <laughs> right, do you have to test dirty to go in, or can he go in testing clean? <laughs> If he's, I think he's, we could just talk for hours. Yeah. I think you, he had. A, if he has a mental slip, he can show up. I'll be willing. All right. Till next time, everybody. Don't die for Christ's sake. And see you next time. <laughs> right? That's the truth. I like it. Thank you all. All right. Great meeting you. Hey, this is Bob, and you can get a hold of Aloe Treatment Centers at 888-595-0235. That's Aloe Treatment Centers in Malibu and Silver Lake, 888-595-0235. Tell them Bob told you to call.